0: Amen. Well, for those who are familiar with Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol, whether or not that familiarity comes uh, from the book itself or it's from one of the film adaptations, uh, you'll remember that the first spirit that visits Scrooge uh, after Jacob Marley, uh, Jacob Marley's ghost actually visits him, is the ghost of Christmas past. At the outset of that encounter, Scrooge asked a clarifying question uh, to this ghost. He asked them, are you the ghost of Christmas long past, to which the spirit corrects him and says, I'm the ghost of your past. And so uh, this spirit leads Scrooge on a series of episodes uh, through his past life, going all the way back to Scrooge's childhood, and then uh, walking with him through a series again of episodes uh, throughout his life. The presence of this ghostly figure, we might say, uh, with Scrooge at this point, has Scrooge being haunted uh, by his past. And he's not alone in this. He's not the only one who's haunted uh, by their past. You know, depending on your situation this morning, uh, you might be experiencing a haunting of your own at various degrees. I actually read an article that was published by the Harvard Medical School uh, entitled, Post-Trauma May Haunt Your Future Health. It notes how childhood trauma, so extreme examples of trauma uh, in childhood, serve as a risk factor for almost everything. And the list of of things that show up in life later on because of that trauma include such things as adult depression. uh, There's actually psychiatric disorders that can point back to uh, childhood trauma and a number of medical problems. I was surprised to read some of these. That heart attack and stroke, uh, cancers, uh, all make this list. These are things that happen uh, throughout life uh, directly resulted or maybe in some cases a secondary result of childhood trauma, what our, how our past takes shape. And it seems that the reason that this is the case is because whatever the trauma might have been, uh, there's, there's tempts, attempts where we try to manage that trauma, we develop coping mechanisms, or there's even physical effects that are lasting because of the trauma itself. So things like uh, wear and tear on your body later in life. Maybe premature aging would be things we see there. These are all culprits. They all point back uh, to something in the past with our childhood, again, childhood trauma. Each is an attempt to reconcile. It's your body trying to reconcile the past. Now, of course, pop psychology has uh, profited on this, and there's been attempts to offer uh, some level of guidance uh, to coming to terms with one's own past or one's own story. Uh, Entries uh, in this kind of Fill the shelves. I remember at one time walking through Barnes & Noble and, and Borders and, and seeing the bookshelves there in, the, in that pop psychology section, just absolutely jam-packed and full. And you know this from your own experience. You could probably go to the airwaves or go to YouTube. You'll find stuff all over the place. I actually did a search on Amazon uh, this week. I, I looked up uh, dealing with past hurts. I put that all in quotes. And I came up with 958 hits uh, in Amazon. If I change that slightly to dealing with trauma, I get over 2,000. And so we can see there there's no shortage of material on this topic. Clearly our past is shaping each one of us uh, to some degree or other with many of us living each day in an effort to either return to the past and attempt to redeem the past or we're all out running away from it. But the past doesn't hold exclusive power to shape who you and I are and how we live today. No matter how prone we might be, nostalgia. I think that's good news. Today's scripture actually uh, points to another place. It points to the future as being a shaping agent for how we live today. It holds the power to inspire and it has the effect of living differently. But we should have in mind here that we're not talking about some unknowable or far distant future. That's not what our writer is talking about here. But rather a future that is prophesied and one that has been understood by Christians for generations to be imminent. And so our writer points to what the ancients understood as the parousia, that coming day of the Lord. Or as 2 Peter in chapter 3 verse 12 will call it, the day of God. So here's what that day looks like. Here's some of the hallmarks for that. We know that in Jewish Christian literature, uh, the day of the Lord is a day of divine judgment. So it's this coming day of divine judgment. It's so significant that the day when it's talked about by apocalyptic writers, uh, they employ language of total destruction and cataclysmic disaster. That's how they introduce it. And you'll see that throughout the, the writings of different apocalyptic writers. It signals the arrival of that day. So we see this type of grandiose, hyperbolic type language. We see that used here in our text as well. Notice verse 10. It's an imminent sense, it'll come like a thief, and so we see that there. I know that there might be some people who are viewing this right now whose minds instantly went to a whole series of movies that are related to The Thief of the Night. Um, I'm sorry you're there right now, please come back. Uh, But you'll note that it talks about it'll come like a thief, the heavens will pass away with a loud noise, here's that grandiose language, the elements will be dissolved with fire, uh, and the earth and everything done on it will be revealed. You'll see in verse 11, there's a second reference to this idea of being dissolved. Verse 12, the heavens are set ablaze and yet again, dissolved. You'll see that there as well. Elements are melted with fire again in verse 12. And then you'll notice in verses 8 and 9 and verse 15, there's a reference to God's patience. You'll see this little note here about God's patience here in the text. And that suggests to us that the events that are being described here, this coming day of the Lord, uh, this uh, this uh, future event is indeed a future event because it has not occurred at the time that this has been written. If I read history correctly, uh, I would say that it still has not happened since that first century. So what do we make of all that? What do we make of this, this event, this kind of, this, this story, of apocalyptic kind of sounding events and this end of the world type thing? I know that one online Bible search engine I was looking at this past week it purports to be able to identify passages around a common theme and so what you do is you type in uh, your your theme and it spits out all the Bible verses that speak to that theme some of you may not be surprised to hear that this morning's Bible text shows up when you type in nuclear war (laughs) That's your theme you type in. It shows up. I was surprised that about 100 verses showed up when you type in nuclear war from the Bible. It's not an uncommon interpretation of this particular text or understanding. It's one that I've actually heard on a number of occasions by some very well-meaning people, uh, people of goodwill, people of good faith. Uh, But that's probably not what's going on here. That's probably not what Peter is trying to say here. So what is? Well, first, we need to note that the audience that this is written to originally is an audience that's in a tough, tough spot. Turn our attention to 1 Peter. We get a picture of that. We, we see where that tough spot's at. This audience is facing local persecution. Now, here in 2 Peter, you can see the effects now start to grow because of that persecution. They are, they've grown in slack. They've kind of slacked off of their godly character, their godly living. We see that in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we see that there's, uh, this, the same community is vulnerable uh, to false teachers. And now here in chapter 3, they're being ridiculed by scoffers who are looking at this doctrine of Christ coming back and saying, that's not going to happen. Come on now. And so with their confidence eroding, so there's this full erosion that's happening, this church has become leery of God's promises, and they've become weary in their expressions of the Christian life. Because Jesus isn't here now, they might reason, Jesus isn't coming. I can hear my own voice saying that this many years later. Because Jesus hasn't come yet, or he isn't here now, Jesus isn't coming. I think that's where disciples go when they start to feel weary and leery. So why not join the scoffers? Why not join that group uh, who in Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3 Are indulging their own lust why not eat drink and be merry because after all tomorrow we die it's not hard to see how a community might descend in that type of thinking it's not hard to see why an individual would not descend to that type of thinking particularly when the pressure of persecution is mounting all around and now they see as we see in 2nd Peter dissension amongst their own ranks but our author here will have none of that he'll say no 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 this is a beloved community and the interest here is expressed the interest of this author in this community is actually expressed for us in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3 just outside of our text note verse 17 the desire here the interest is that they not be carried away with the error of the lawless and lose your own stability Right? That's, that's part of that interest. But rather, look at verse 18. The author wants them to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so this author uh, who is coming uh, to them with what is a key understanding of the Christian faith is reminding them and reminding us this morning that there is a future prize. And if we turn this into language of our own day... The author here is saying, keep your eye on the prize. Keep your eye on the prize. There is a future prize, keep your eye on that. And what is that prize? We see that in verse 13. New heavens, a new earth where righteousness is at home. A new heaven, a new earth where righteousness is at home. Isaiah prophesied so many years earlier about what this transformed creation would look like we hear that in Isaiah chapter 65 and similar themes are picked up elsewhere you'll notice that there in Revelation 21 as well but according to Isaiah this new creation and this is again Isaiah chapter 65 is where in verse 19 of Isaiah God is said to rejoice and delight in his people there's a sense that the loving God the gracious God Uh, who has created us and has renewed our lives has given us life is going to be in that space in that time is going to be present in a way that we sense god's rejoicing over us and delighting in us as god's people in verse 20 we see here there that there's no more sound of weeping there the cry of distress it's gone that those things that we think about in this life that bring so much pain that brings so much hurt, that brings so much separation and destruction to our lives, that in that new heaven, that new earth, where righteousness is at home, that is gone. We hear that in Isaiah 65:20. We also know that it's not unusual in the first century or any of the centuries in the ancient world, but even in our own day, for someone to live to an advanced age. The idea of somebody living to their 80s, their 90s, even to 100s in the ancient world, that would have been uncommon that would have been unusual but here we have in Isaiah 65 again in verse 21 Isaiah notes that in the new creation premature death is no longer a thing that's no longer a thing in fact the surprising things of children who are dying of infants who are dying which infant mortality rates in the ancient world would have been extremely high and Isaiah is prophesying into that world and saying a day is coming a transformation in the world will occur Creation will be changed to a place. This is how God's working, that those things that cause so much pain and destruction will no longer be a thing. In verses 21 through 23 of Isaiah 65, we learn that security, provision, and blessing will mark the lives of those living in the new creation. In fact, the language that's used here, the categories that are discussed, are the ones that look to be fulfillment of the promise that was made to Abram and Sarah that their descendants would have a land, that they would have a place to dwell, that they would have an inheritance. Separation between God and God's people will be no more. We hear that in verse 24 of Isaiah 65. And then this, famous words uh, that you've probably heard before. It says that the new creation, when it's described in verse 25, again of Isaiah chapter 65, the wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, but the serpent, its food shall be dust. They shall not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountains, says the Lord. This new creation, to borrow the terms of a a song from our own day and age, is the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we experience it. It's a totally different type of world. It's a transformed creation where those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be full. They will be full. God wants that for you, and God wants that for me. If you're hearing this this morning, that's God's desire for you, that you might live in that transformed world, that you might be in that new creation. And the good news here, as Ann Jervis has observed, is that the righteousness of God and Christ is stronger than sin and wickedness. Sin and wickedness, unlike God and Christ, will come to an end. And what's more, this future is inspiration for how we live now. And that's what our author is saying here in 2 Peter. Are you a little excited right now? You get a little excited when you hear those words? Like that's in view of this author as they write to this persecuted bunch. This group that's looking to split away, to leave, to go, is it worth it? I don't know if I can keep going. I don't know if I can live into this, this situation. I don't know if I can be that person or be those people that God called me way back when. And here this author writes to them and writes to you and me today and says, Keep going. Keep your eye on the prize. It's going to be worth it. In fact, it's worth it today. Note here that as we talk about these categories from this author that we're not talking about escapism here. There's no retreating from the present life, no matter the hardship. There's no abandoning what is now so that we might live into the future. There's a sense here that Christian living is not Tomorrowland as well. I remember going to Tomorrowland in Disneyland, going down and looking at, going on the different rides and kind of getting a speculative vision of what one imagines tomorrow will hold. I know when we lived in Connecticut, we'd drive down to JFK Airport and on our way, we'd drive by uh, a large uh, field uh, park area where they had uh, remnants from one of the World's Fairs there in New York. I think it was the 1964 World's Fair. And they had uh, these different, kind of looks like little space uh, saucers, kind of thing. You drive by and you see these in this, in this field. World's Fairs are always uh, were popular for showing you what the future might hold, what that might look like. That's not the Christian life. It's not a speculative life about what tomorrow will hold. In fact, we may not know the particulars of what tomorrow will look like. We may not know exactly what it's going to look like to live into that future new creation, that new heaven and that new earth. But what we do know is this. We know what's coming. We know that justice and righteousness are coming. And we know who is coming. We know that Jesus is coming so it's not completely unknown so in light of that future and drawing on the writer's own question here in verses 11 and 12 what sort of person ought you and I be as we live today in our waiting for the day of the Lord how should our lives look today how should they take shape what should we be about How then should we be living? Well, the scoffers live as though there would be no future judgment. That's where the place they're living from. But those living with the day of the Lord in view, what we might call Advent people, people who are waiting, people who are making preparation for that day, they live from a different place. And here's what Peter talks about that place looking. First of all, we're to be patient. We have to be patient. We have a model here of what patience looks like, and that model here in our text is God, who is described in verse 9 as being patient with us. Now, I don't know you, at least not at the very core of who you are, but I do know me, and if God has been patient with me, that means that patience is huge. (laughs) It's a very large patience. Now, move that across all people of all time for God to be patient with the human family. Enormous patience. We're called to be patient as well. In this waiting, the writer talks about we're looking for, we're looking forward to, and we're hastening, or we're desiring earnestly. But in that desiring and in that waiting, great, great patience. The second thing is this, we're to turn toward repentance. The text talks about that the appropriate response to God's own patience here is repentance God's desire here why God is waiting is so that all might come all might repent and so our response then is appropriately to live lives of repentance not stubborn difficult lives not godless lives but rather lives that repent and we've already modeled that here in worship this morning but we live that way every day of our lives the last thing we see here is that our lives, in addition to being patient, in addition to being lives of repentance, we're to live lives that are characterized by piety, holy conduct, and godliness. Such qualities as a goodness and self-control, endurance and mutual affection, lives that are characterized by love. These are all identified in chapter 1 of Second Peter. But what is said here is that the things that will be revealed by fire. If you notice in chapter 3, what is being revealed by that fire? When all things are burned up, we note this, the kinds of lives that we've lived. We see here that the works done on earth are what's revealed here. These characteristics are what shows up on the day of the Lord. Now, I imagine that not too few uh, who are participating in worship this morning, particularly if you... uh, are, are strongly, have a strong history in the Protestant tradition. You might be getting a little nervous right now on that last one. You might be thinking, I, th- I think Jimmy is starting to talk a little bit about here about works righteousness, and that makes me a little bit nervous. I'm a little bit worried about that. Uh, I, I know that we're saved by grace through faith, but, you know, Jimmy, I'm a little w- nervous about what you just said there. And you might think that we veered here towards what some would call a Roman Catholic error. You might say that we veered into this, this, this arena that Luther and Calvin and the greats of old uh, stood against. Well, I appreciate John Frederick's words here when he writes this. He says, While a judgment according to works is certainly not an error, it can be said to be both Roman and Catholic. For one of the primary places that the Catholic, and Catholic in the sense the word means universal, so, universally held doctrine is taught by St. Paul in no other place than Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. God will render to each one according to his works. And so, friends, as we consider where we live, the places we live, how we act and conduct ourselves, we do well as Advent people, as those who are patiently waiting, who've turned our hearts and our lives back to God, saying in repentance, Transform us, change us to be the people you'd have us to be, and help us to live lives today of goodness, of love, of faithfulness. We do well uh, to live that way. In conclusion, I want to uh, draw our attention to back to uh, this idea of the past as being a place that shapes us, and forms us. The second act of his play, *The Tempest*, Shakespeare uh, has a line that got has gotten a lot of mileage online from folks who are talking about how our past has, has shaped us. You, know, you, remember, you might remember this, Shakespeare says, whereof what's past is prologue. Famous, you might have seen a meme of that or something show up on social media. What is past is prologue. But Shakespeare goes on to write this, says, what to come in yours and my discharge. What is to come? Those things, those next steps, that's clearly in, it's clearly in our path to take action. Whatever our past holds, however our prologue reads you and I are charged to live today in view of God's promises we're charged to live in view of God's promises a God who in Jesus Christ promises as the hymn resounds strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow and so the second line we might sing in our Advent Carol this season might sound something like this. And of course, this comes after we sing that song with all the saints at the end of Revelation, come. God, by your grace, help me to live today in light of what is to come tomorrow. May it be so. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Friends, let us pray together. Lord, indeed, that is our prayer today. That each step that we take today would be a step that's taken and illumined by the light of what is to come tomorrow. Lord, we understand too well how those Christians of old might have grown slack. How they might have become discouraged. How they might have seen uh, their very lives slipping away. Their very faith slipping away at the same time. And so Lord, we don't fault them for that. But instead, Lord, we join them in being inspired and encouraged by you and your spirit, by your word that speaks a good word to us today. Lord, as they have witnessed to faithfulness, their faithfulness, but more so your faithfulness in their generation, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be inspired and be witnesses to your faithfulness and ours. We look forward to that day that Christ will come. Lord, prepare us each and every day for that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.